Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at a number of different passages this morning, but the Acts 2 will be the place where we first turn our attention. could encourage you. Um, uh, Devin Brown is still in the hospital after having hip replacement surgery, and um, I know she would uh, greatly appreciate uh, any who would reach out either uh, via text message or Facebook or even have a chance to, um, to visit. And so um, if you can remember her uh, sometime in the next day or two, uh, that would be greatly appreciated as we don't want to forget her uh, in her time of, uh, of need. So, Devin Brown, Joanne. Devin Brown? Good? All right. So, um, yeah, if you, can, if you can remember her, that would be good. She's in the hospital, had hip replacement surgery. So, uh, so I want to remember her in prayer. All right, well, let's pray to the Lord together, and then we'll begin our, begin our study this morning. Father, we're grateful again to be gathered as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask you help us uh, set any distractions from our minds aside and uh, give us wisdom to see from your word what you would have for us this morning and hearts that are eager to put it into practice. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we're going to begin a mini-series that will run through uh, the next several weeks on the topic of church membership. And I realize in saying that, that I probably just lost half of you, all right? So you're probably thinking, wake me up when you're done, or uh, send me an email when the series is finished and I'll come back. Well, if that's your thought, then this series is definitely, uh, definitely for you. Um, but this is a topic that not many people are concerned about, and uh, you're not likely to find this on a list of like vital issues Christians are struggling with and, and are desperate to know the answers to, and uh, you're not going to find, you know, the, the, this was the New York Times bestseller, a book on church membership, okay? Uh, but it is an important topic, and I hope to, to convince you of that in, the, in this week and in the weeks to come as to why this is uh, an important topic. So why address the topic of, of church membership? Why, why preach a series like this? Well, a, a pragmatic reason would be this, okay? I have for some time been desiring to rewrite our membership, uh, our, our booklet for our class for new members, and I can never get around to it. And so this will actually give me like a good foundation for, for rewriting those notes. And so... As a plan for that, I was going to teach through this, this topic on Wednesday nights in the summer. But at the encouragement of Pastor Mike and Pastor Brett, they're like, well, why don't you do this on Sunday morning when most of our people uh, are with us and gathered? And, and so I switched from Wednesday night to now Sunday. And so if you don't like the series, you can blame uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Brett, Okay. The alternative, though, was going to be a study through the Minor Prophets. So that was, <laughs> you could weigh you know, which one you were uh, most interested in. Now, the non-pragmatic reasons why we might consider this topic. Uh, there is always the need for realignment. Uh, so from time to time, you'll be driving your car. 
You'll notice that it's pulling in one direction or the other, and you know that it becomes necessary to take it into the mechanic for an alignment uh, so you can prevent other issues like ruining your tires. And it's not that things are drastically wrong and that your automobile's not able to function uh, when it needs realigned, but it's that it functions better when you have an alignment and things are aligned properly. And from time to time, we are in the need as, as believers, as, as, as people who regularly attend our, our church, for a, for a realignment when it comes to, to certain topics. And, and membership is one of those topics. We, we sometimes need a reminder or a reset of our responsibilities of what it means to be a, a member of a local church. What does the Bible say that we are to be doing? And it's not that we're not functioning as we should, uh, but it's that we can function better if we have such a realignment. And even as I've studied uh, through this material in, in preparation, uh, as a pastor, I, I need a realignment. Right? I, need to, I need to be refocused and, and have my energies put on things that are, that are most important, that are, that are aligned with my, my tasks and calling and responsibilities, and, and to make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And, it, and we all need these kind of reminders. A third reason why we want to address this topic is what I would say is a concerning trend in American Christianity. And that is, some people might even call this like an epidemic. And that is the, the, the tendency for believers to view church from a consumer mindset. Okay, what does the church have to offer me? And so choices about choosing a church or whether to remain in a church or not are based on, on this foundational conviction that the church is primarily there to serve me. And if Walmart doesn't have it, then I'll go to Target, because after all, it's about finding a place that services my particular needs. Now, it's not that we don't come to church looking for certain things or desiring certain things, or because, because we do, okay? We, we come because we need accountability, we need to be fed by the word. We need to be encouraged by brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are also here to give and to pour into our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want to sort of rid ourselves of this consumeristic mindset that probably developed back in the 90s when the, the megachurch movement started. And, and, and it, it, this type of mindset has not been neutral, but rather it's been harmful to the church as it cuts against the grain of what God intended church membership to look like. And so I hope we'll see from a proper view of church membership um, that this challenges this consumeristic mindset. Lastly, I think the reason to address this particular topic is because we have made uh, some significant changes in our structure here over the last several months. And the reason we have done that is not just because we like to change and we think it's fun, all right? But the reason we've done that is because we have certain fundamental commitments, uh, certain uh, presuppositions about what the church is to do and to be that we believe are important. And if those changes are to be successful or beneficial for our Christian lives, then, then we need to all be operating on the same assumptions as to, as to what we are to do and be as, or be and do as a local church. 
All right, so what we're going to do is, is in this series come back to some of the things we're called to be as believers, and then our schedule, Lord willing, fleshes those things out on a, on a weekly basis. So for these reasons, and probably many others, uh, I hope this series is, is both biblically rich and helpful for our church. Now perhaps you hear the term church membership, and objections automatically raise in your mind, right? So some of it might be, well, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, so why would I join a church? Or some might object, why join a church when churches are so full of problems? It's hard to argue with that one. I mean, you read the news, and churches of any stripe are in the news all the time for not good reasons, but bad reasons, so so why would I want to attach myself to that. Some people might object, I just don't see the need. I'm doing quite well on my own. And others might object, well, is church membership even in the Bible? I hope to address some of these objections as we, as we go through these series, at least in, in, in passing. But this last objection, or this last question, is church membership in the Bible, it raises an important question. And so this is the place where we want to begin our study, answering this particular question. And I want to submit to you that this is the most important question. Is church membership found in the Scriptures? Because if it's not in the Bible, well then why would we practice it, let alone emphasize it or do a series on it? But secondly, if it is in the Bible, then it answers all the other objections. Because if we conclude the church membership is biblical, then the only remaining question is, will we submit ourselves to what the Bible says? And so this is the most important question that we want to answer at the outset. So by the end of our study this morning, I hope you will conclude that at the very least, there's something to the idea of church membership in the Scriptures, that, that without it, certain commands and precepts cannot be practiced, or at the very least, cannot be practiced effectively. All right, so let me, let me say that again, because this is really crucial for our study this morning. I hope you'll conclude that at the very least, the concept exists in the Bible, and that without it, certain things that were commanded to practice are somewhat difficult or almost impossible to practice if there isn't the foundational understanding of church membership in the Bible. So let's begin to answer this question, is church membership in the Bible? And the answer to the question is yes and no. Depends on how you're asking the question. All right? If you're looking for a verse that commands you, thou shalt be a member of a local church, you're not going to find one. Maybe in Second Opinions, uh, you'll find one, but you're not going to find one in any of the other books. Of the, okay, Second Opinions is not actually a book of the Bible, just in case you're wondering this morning, okay? You're not going to find a verse that tells, that tells us that Stephen became a member at the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, okay? So you're not going to find references to membership in that direction. But does that mean that the Scriptures are silent on this matter of membership? While I agree that the words don't appear in Scripture, I do think that the concept is found throughout the New Testament. 
And I think it's found throughout the New Testament to the extent that we should conclude that it's thoroughly biblical and worth emphasizing among believers in our church. Now, as a side note, personally, I'm not married to the title of membership, right? You could call it by some other name, whether it's partnership or the in crowd and the out crowd, okay, which I don't know that that would go real well, but you could call it some other title, but it's the, it's the concept that, that bears emphasizing in our assembly. So with these introductory thoughts in mind, I'd like to offer six biblical arguments for the concept of church membership. And it's not likely that any one of these arguments by itself is, is going to convince you, but when you put them together, then there does seem to be a weighty argument for the practice of church membership in Scripture. So number one is this. The early church kept lists or records indicating there was knowledge of who belonged to the church. Okay, so let me say it again. The early church kept lists and records indicating there was knowledge of who belonged to the church. So here we are first in Acts chapter 2. So let's turn our attention to this passage. This is the very beginning of the church. And you were looking at the end of the passage starting in verse 41, or the end of the chapter starting in verse 41. In the beginning of the chapter, the apostles, uh, they receive the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches at Pentecost. He doesn't even get to the invitation. They interrupt him, and they're like, all right, all right, we get it. How do we, how do we turn from our sins? How do we, how do we respond properly to, to what you're saying? And the conclusion of all things come down to verse 41. Where the conclusion begins and says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and gracious hearts, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, the word church does not appear in Acts chapter 2. But it is clear that something new is happening, something new is, is coming together. This is not Israel repenting and sort of coming back to their, to their Lord as we see a covenant renewal in the Old Testament. This is a new organization that's forming together by people who have repented of their sin, believed in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and then, as we see here in verse 41, they're baptized. And when they're baptized, and after repenting and believing, they are added to the church. We see in verse 42, they begin to meet regularly. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is really a fulfillment of the Great Commission, right? Back in Matthew 28, Jesus tells them, make disciples, and he says this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And now, 
that body of truth that Jesus taught is referred to here in verse 42 as the apostles' teaching, and that's what they gathered to devote themselves to. They are eating together, they're praying together, and they are sharing life together. Now, it's not until the book of Acts moves forward that we see that this new group is referred to by the title church, right? So it's not till Acts 5.11 where it says, and great fear came upon the whole church. And then in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, you don't have to turn to these passages, it says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house to house and committing people to prison. In Acts 14.23, it says, and then when they had appointed elders, this is at the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas' first missions trip, many come to Christ and they appoint elders for them in every church. So the pattern in Acts is that they repent and believe, they're baptized, and then they are assembled together into a a, a local body, into a a church. Now these are just a few examples, but it shows us that, that this whole new organization referred to as the church starts back here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. And notice what it says. It says that they added that day about 3,000 souls. So someone, we don't know who, but clearly someone is keeping track of who is baptized and who is added to this new group. Now turn over to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4 and you see something similar. It says in Acts 4, 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So they're continuing to keep track of individuals who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the early church is, is keeping some sort, of, some sort of list indicating there's knowledge of who belongs to the church, Okay. Now, one other example of a list that we find in the New Testament church is over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5. So please turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I really wrestled with whether we should read this whole section, but I think it'll be beneficial to make our point here, so we'll we'll read this together in in chapter 5, beginning of verse 3 down to verse 16. I'll try to read it quickly, but but pay close attention because the point I want to make here is, uh, I think, is helpful. The Apostle Paul is giving instructions here to Timothy, who's serving in Ephesus, and he says this in verse 3, "'Honor widows who are truly widows.'" But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even where she, while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now for our point, verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been a wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. 
but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If a believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. An interesting passage, is it not? Right? The Apostle Paul is concerned that widows in the church be cared for, especially in this particular context in Ephesus. Okay? The economy of the day likely didn't provide uh, or, or, or plan for any kind of life insurance or, or some sort of retirement funds continuing to come in, and so the loss of a husband could, could leave a person decimated in this context. So it was especially important that the church had an eye for and cared for the widows in their midst. However, in order to ensure that the church's resources were not wasted, Paul sets up some parameters to care for widows, as he says here in this passage, who are truly widows. Or I like the New American Standard, they are widows indeed. Okay? Um, but certain widows were to be added to the list for care, while other widows were to be kept off the list. Maybe they had family to provide for them, or uh, perhaps they, they were disqualified for some other reason. But what we see here is, is really two things about the topic of membership. Number one, there was a list or a record, and it was not uncommon for this kind of thing to exist in the local church, right? Acts chapter 2, they're already keeping record of who's there. First Timothy 5, they're clearly keeping track of a, a list of, of what widows should be cared for. So the idea of a list and a record is not uncommon in, in the early church. Number two, they seem to know which widows are among them and which widows are not among them. Right? They seem to have knowledge of who belongs and who does not belong, who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Okay? Now, this is our first argument for church membership and it being in the Scripture, okay? that the early church kept lists and records indicating there was knowledge of, of who belonged to the church. Now, we move to our second point, and it's this. Church decisions assume a knowledge of who belonged to the church. Okay, church decisions assume a knowledge of who belonged to the church. So go back with me to the book of Acts and chapter 6. Book of Acts and chapter 6. Begin with reading with me in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, apostles that is, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out, verse 3, 
pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Man, I really should have read these names ahead, okay? But you get who they are, all right? Verse 6, all right? They set them before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. And the word of God had continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Okay, so, so here we have in, in this passage, which is commonly understood as the choosing of the first deacons in the church. And in this context, the gospel's advancing, the church is growing, but they run into a potential issue. One sect of the widows in the church were not being cared for as well as they could or should. And it was starting to cause tension within the assembly. But the apostles are like, listen, we don't want to leave the ministry of the word and prayer in order to serve these people, but they agree they, they do need to be served effectively. And so their solution found here in verse 3 is this. Pick out from among you, okay, you guys pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty of serving the widows in this way. Now, we're going to unpack this passage in, in great detail, but notice that the congregation had the responsibility to choose from among themselves men who could serve in this capacity. The assumption is that if they were making such a decision, that they would have knowledge of who was in and who was out of the assembly. They could choose people from, from, from their assembly who could serve in this way. They weren't saying something like this, well, you know, Dave, Dave is a nice guy, and you know, he's been hanging around here for a while. Maybe he could serve in this way. And somebody says, well, you know, Dave hasn't been baptized, and we're not even sure if Dave is, is, is really a believer, uh, so well, maybe he wouldn't be a good fit for this kind of position. No, they knew who was in, and they knew who was out, and they could make a, be- a decision who could best serve in this capacity because they knew who was in. So church decisions assume a knowledge of who belonged to the church. Let's look at our third point, and that's this. The practice of church discipline assumes knowledge of who is in and who is out. The practice of church discipline assumes knowledge of who is in and who is out. So now take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This was our scripture reading passage that we read earlier in our our worship service, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And since we read it already, I won't highlight these, this, this whole passage or read this whole passage, but we'll just hit uh, some of the highlights that are, that are taking place here. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Okay, 
Now, we'll come to the matter of church discipline later in our series and how it relates to, to church membership. But what's taking place in this particular context is there is a man who is living in open and unrepentant sexual immorality. It's likely he's having some sort of relationship with his stepmom. And the Corinthian church has not done anything about it. In fact, we see here, Paul says, you're even proud about this, which is a weird thing to be proud about, but maybe it's like they were proud that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, and there was a sense of of antinomianism that existed among them. So Paul, he's, he's obviously righteously frustrated about this, and he gives them instructions as to what they're supposed to do. So they're to deliver this individual over to Satan. Look at verses 4 and 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you in the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're to, to set him outside in the hopes that, that Satan will have his way with him and he'll, say, he'll see this is not the life I want to live, and so he'll repent and come back to the Lord. Okay? So his, his instruction there is deliver this man to Satan. His, his instruction further is to cleanse out the old leaven that exists. Right, Verses 6 and 7, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump. Okay? Sin left in the assembly is going to affect the assembly, so, so get this man out. And then in verse 13, he concludes the whole passage by saying this, Purge the evil person from among you. Okay? So the goal in, in discipline, as we'll see in, in a few weeks, the goal in discipline is, is purity. First, the attempt is to purify the individual who's an unrepentant sin. And if that proves unfruitful... Then the goal is the purity of the church. You purge the individual from the church in order that the church can remain pure and not have sin uh, affect it. Okay? And so that's what's taking place in this passage. But in regards to church membership and our discussion for church membership, there are three things we want to highlight about this passage. Number one, I think it's pretty obvious in 1 Corinthians 5 that churches have an inside and an outside. Or would they recognize the difference between who's in and who's out? Because this is Paul's instructions. Set this man outside. Deliver him over to Satan. Purge this man from your midst. Okay, so churches have an inside and an outside. Secondly, members are expected to know who is in and who is out. Okay, this is supposed to be clear from, from this passage here. And lastly... And this is a very important point. Members are under the authority of a church such that if they persist in unrepentance, they are to be excluded. And we're going to come to this in a few weeks on the importance of of, of accountability in a local church. But as believers who are consistently tempted to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin... We need the accountability of the local church. We need people to, to push us to Christ. We need people to rebuke us when we're, we're walking in sin. Both you and me, your, your leaders and, and, and your regular lay people, they need to hear these kinds of, uh, kinds of rebukes. And we need to be removed if we are hardened in unrepentance. Okay? 
So, so we're under the authority of a church as, as members, so much so that if we persist in unrepentance, we are to be excluded. Now, notice this. It is difficult to see how church discipline could be practiced in any meaningful way without an established understanding of church membership. Okay, without an understanding of who's in and out, the concept of church discipline just doesn't make sense. So we would conclude that formal membership must have existed, at least here in the church in Corinth. Okay, three more points, but only one more passage. All right, let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This is just one verse in verse 17. And it really gives us two different arguments for church membership. Okay, in verse 17 we read this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, but that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, so point number four is this. The command for believers to submit to their leaders assumes a formal relationship between a Christian and a church. Okay, the command for believers to submit to their leaders assumes a, a formal relationship between a Christian and a church. Okay, so notice the passage here. The command is, is found here in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, as believers, you are not responsible to submit to every church leader out there. Right? You watch a guy on TV who's a, some sort of evangelist. You're not responsible to bring yourself under his authority and honor and submit to, to what he says. I mean, you're not responsible to just every leader that, that exists out there. It says this in Hebrews 7, 13, 17, submit to your leaders. Much like the command to, for children to obey your parents, there's a particular set of parents in mind in, in that passage. So when a Christian becomes a member of a local church, they are formally bringing themselves under the care and the leadership of their pastors. In such a way that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 says that they are over you in the Lord. Okay, so this relationship uh, or this, 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 this command assumes a formal relationship. Now stay there in verse 13, and this gives us point number 5, and it's this. The fact that pastors will give an account for those under their care assumes a formal relationship between believers and a church. Okay, so it's not just you're responsible to submit, but also that leaders will give an account. Notice the second, second half of verse 17. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account before the Lord for how they shepherd. So as pastors, we're responsible for how we care for the flock and will give an account before God. Now, the question is this, 
to whom are we responsible before God to give an account? Is it just someone who sort of shows up randomly every, every few weeks or every so often who decides to sit and enjoy one of our services? Are we as pastors responsible to give an account before the Lord for those individuals? I don't think so. I think it seems like there's a formal relationship here between those who formally bring themselves under the care of, of the shepherds to whom we will give care and oversight and responsibility or account before God. So I think this passage assumes a formal relationship between a church and a Christian. Now lastly, and this is just sort of a a larger point that doesn't have one passage of scripture in mind, but I'll just finish with this one. It says this. The one and other passages in the New Testament are practiced most effectively in the context of formal relationships between a church and a Christian. Okay, so the New Testament, as you know, is packed with commands to love and care for one another, to build up one another, to maturity in Christ. And the question is this. Are believers responsible to love and care for all believers everywhere in the same way? Right? Is your responsibility to care and love believers is it the same for the people in this room as it is for someone on the other side of the country that you might know? Okay, so let's tease this out for, as an illustration. Let's say you have a coworker, and that coworker professes Christ. And perhaps through the years, you've enjoyed Christian fellowship in the workplace and occasionally on lunches with this individual. But he begins to stray a bit. And it's becoming known throughout the office that he's getting drunk with co-workers after work, and everyone in the office knows about it. The question is this. What is your responsibility to that individual? Well, you should confront him in his sin. You should attempt to clarify to those that you work with that this is, excuse me, <coughs> this is not how Christ commands believers to live. You might even call his pastor to inform him, hey, this is, this is going on, and it's pretty public, and everybody knows about it. But I think we'd admit, to some extent, your hands are tied in what you're able to do about this fellow co-worker who's stumbling into sin because you don't have a formal membership relationship with him. Now, let's say that same person that you work with, who's a believer, is also a member of your local church. How does that change? Well, you confront the coworker, and if you're unsuccessful in him turning from his sin, what do, you, what do you do next? You take two or three witnesses with you to establish that he's unrepentant in his sin, and maybe you even end up removing the individual from membership in the church. Not you personally, but as a, as a church, you end up removing this individual. In the workplace, you don't interact with him in the same way. You still love him, you still want to call him to repentance of his sin, but you don't associate in a casual way to say that his unrepentance is, is no big deal. You continue to, call him, continue to call him back to repentance. And my point is this, that church membership gives a context for the one another's to be fulfilled most effectively. Okay, You're, you're set a, setting aside, in essence, to a particular group of people where you commit to one another to fulfill those one another commands that are found in scriptures. And it's in this context that the one another's can be practiced most effectively. 
Okay, so here's what we want to conclude then from the scripture passages that we've just considered. It seems quite clear that a formal relationship existed between a church and an individual, an individual Christian, and that both the church and the believer were aware of this relationship. I think that's what we conclude from, from this passage this morning. If they didn't practice membership, well, how would they practice church discipline? And how would they hold one another accountable? And for whom would leaders be responsible to give an account? And, and how would they build trust and community, uh, community in, in, in the church? So this is what the scriptures teach us about membership. But let me finish with one last question, and it is this. What is church membership. Okay, so we've established that the, the concept of church membership, I think, is, is biblical, okay? But we've only barely begun to define what membership is. We established that it exists, but we haven't at all unpacked in, in depth what it, what it is and the duties and the responsibilities of, of, of members. And so at this point, I want to begin to define church membership. And I'm going to use a definition that we've used in, in small group contexts here in, in, in the past, several years ago. And this definition has four parts, but I'm only going to give you one part this morning. It's going to be like a cliffhanger. Right? I remember growing up in Awana, and my dad would teach the kids, and he always told the, the, taught the lesson about Sunday School Charlie. And every week... Sunday School Charlie got in some sort of bind, and then we weren't able to find out the solution until the, until the next week. And as a kid, we would all walk away going, oh, come on. So that's probably how you're going to walk away from this, from this study this morning, all right? I'm serious. You probably, I, I really expect that. I really do. Okay. All right. So definition, this is just part one. Church membership is a formal relationship between a particular church and a Christian that consists of dot, dot, dot. All right. So let's just talk about that first aspect, and then in the weeks to come, we'll unpack the other aspects of the definition, okay? It is a formal relationship between a particular church and a Christian that consists of certain commitments. Now, just park on that idea of a formal relationship. Sometimes this is referred to as a covenant that describes the relationship that believers are to have together, or we covenant together to do and, and, and be these things as a church. Now, now, once you start talking about formal relationships and covenants and commitments, people start to get a little bit uncomfortable. Like, like we're Americans, right? We are known for our independence and our freedom and no one tells us what to do. And in large part in our society, the concept of commitment is, is, is lost. I mean, nowadays, couples live together before they get married. In some cases, never even pursue marriage. They like the benefits of marriage without the commitment. And even divorce among marriages is, is more and more common, where couples don't stay together through the difficult times. But commitment is the foundation on which relationships thrive. Okay, if we are committed 
to one another. That provides a foundation for the relationship to thrive because we know no matter what comes our way, we're, we're committed to making it to making it work. Okay, like when commitment is high, you don't easily escape or walk away from the relationship. Okay, you're forced to work it out. If your seventh grade girlfriend gives you trouble, you just move on, right? Nothing gets you over the last one like the next one, right? That's just how junior high relationships work. But if you have trouble with your spouse of 30 years and you have three kids and, and you've committed before God to love for better or for worse, you can't and you won't easily escape from that relationship. And in a sense, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that, that, that escaping from it has such high cost because it forces us to work it out. And we should think about church membership much like marriage. Not as binding, all right? <laughs> Not as difficult to get out, but we should think about the concept of, of church membership as, as being like marriage because there are some similarities, okay? Let me highlight some. We commit before we fully know all the flaws and idiosyncrasies. All right? Is that the case with marriage? You're like, okay, I, mar- I thought I was marrying this person, and, and yeah, there was some truth to it, but there are some other things that I, that I didn't know. All right? And that's just how marriage works. You're committing before you know fully everything you're getting into. And that's how it should be, and that's how it is with church membership. You're committing to be a member before you really know these people and all their flaws and idiosyncrasies. It's also similar in that you stick with it even when it is difficult. You're not going to experience the joys and the benefits of marriage if you quit early when things get difficult. It's only after through walking through the difficulties and challenges that the relationship is strengthened you begin to experience some deep benefits from it. And it's the same with church membership. Okay? When you walk through difficult times with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it's only then that you really begin to, to see the benefits of, of a long-lasting, committed relationship. Okay? It's similar to marriage in that we commit our time, our energy, our resources to make it work. We commit focusing what we can give, not what we can get. Okay? That's, how, well, that's supposed to be how marriage works. You come into it. But honestly, we're probably all thinking about what we can get out of marriage. But biblically speaking... Our, our, the principle is, is, is we should go into marriage thinking about how we can love and give like Christ loved, right? And it's like, like marriage in that we relate differently to our spouse than we do to other men and women. And that, by, I mean, is when you become a member of a church, you are relating differently to these members than you are other believers out there. You've got very specific responsibilities to commit to these people and covenant together to these people to push one another toward maturity in Christ. So here at Maranatha, we have a church covenant, promises we make to one another, and before every congregational meeting, we bring this covenant before us to remind us of our responsibilities. Now just let me highlight some of those promises. We endeavor to walk together in Christian love, standing behind the church with conviction, supporting its doctrines, and upholding its disciplines. 
We contribute regularly to the support of the ministry, to the expenses of the church, to the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel at home and throughout all nations. We endeavor to watch over one another in brotherly love. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We will remember each other in prayer. We will aid each other in distress. We will be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation. We will settle and resolve disputes disputes quickly, and the list goes on. Okay? This is what membership is. It's it's, It's a formal relationship that is the foundation for living out these promises in our covenant. So this is the first aspect of what membership is. It is a formal relationship. And I think at the very least, we see that in Scripture. That some type of formal relationship existed between a Christian and a church. Call it membership. Call it partnership. Call it whatever you think is a, is a helpful term. But the, the concept is there in Scripture. So if the concept is there in Scripture, we have to ask ourselves this question. Am I convinced? Am I convinced that such a formal relationship existed in Scripture? And if so, what does that mean for me? Well, for the vast majority of us here who are, mem- are members of our church, it's a, it's a good reminder. A good reminder of what we've committed to and what our responsibilities are to one another. And if you're not a member, then, then you have to wrestle with, with the concepts and the principles we've just unpacked. Because if these things are scriptural, then what am I going to do about them? Am I attached to a local church that holds me accountable for which I am to invest? And maybe you're here thinking, well, I really don't even know a lot about Christianity, let alone church membership. So what would you say to me? Well, we're talking about these principles because we believe that when God reconciles us to himself, he, always, he also reconciles us to his people, the bride of Christ. And so the gospel, as we've talked about and will talk about in weeks to come, the, the, the gospel and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ is first necessary before we even think about joining up with other brothers and sisters in Christ to hold each other accountable. So maybe you're here this morning, you've never crossed the line to become a Christian, or you're not sure what Christianity is all about. It's essentially back in Acts 2, what Peter preached in this, in this, on the day of Pentecost, that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he lived the sinless life that you and I could not live, he died the sacrificial death that we deserve to die because of our sins, and he rose again in victory. And Christians are those who repent of their sins and embrace that message. And Lord willing, they join together in a body of believers. But at the very least, Christians are those who embrace that message. And if you've never embraced that message, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And friends, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ this morning. So please seek us out after. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word clarity and guidance that it gives us. May we submit to it with eager hearts, seeking to obey you in all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.